0: This is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology with my co-editor, Brian Lacey. I'm at Cedar sinai Medical Center and Dr. Lacey's at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. And today we'll be speaking with Monia Worlang, who is at the University of South Carolina on the Greenville campus. And we'll be talking about uh, a new paper that she has published as the first author entitled Assessing for Eating Disorders a primer for gastroenterologists. And I was struck by the beginning of this paper, which uh, starts with a quote that says, one cannot think well, love well, sleep well, if one has not dined well. So this sort of opens up the whole notion that eating, of course, is both a physical experience, but also uh, a very psychological experience, an emotional experience a social experience. It's part of the human condition to be able to eat, not just for physical sustenance, but for biopsychosocial well-being. So what we'll talk about today is what can go wrong when eating is maladapted uh, and how gastroenterologists should be on the lookout for eating disorders. So thanks very much for being with us today.
1: No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure uh, to write the article and I learned very much studying about this, to write the article and speaking with my co-authors as well. It's incredible. It's a, an amazing topic that now is very dear to my heart.
0: Great. So let's get into it. So this paper is really about eating disorders. And maybe we can just start by discussing what you know. what is an eating disorder? What are the most common eating disorders that GI doctors might face in their clinical practice?
1: All right. So I'll start talking about the most common ones or the ones that have been more traditional, that people have been more aware and probably more on the lookout. And then I'll talk a little bit about ARFID or the avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is the most recently recognized eating disorder by DSM-5. So anorexia nervosa is one of the most well-known eating disorders, and that is characterized by an energy intake restriction that leads to weight loss or failure to make an expected gain in weight. That is accompanied by an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat or appearing fat in general. And sometimes patients are not very open or explicit about this fear, but they sustain behaviors that really interfere with weight gain despite, let's say, another organic condition that has gotten better, but then they sustain the behavior that prevents them from regaining the weight they lost. There's also in anorexia nervosa, a persistent lack of recognition of the seriousness of the disease. Currently with DSM-5 anorexia, you no longer have to have a low weight threshold that we used to have. Now it's more about the patient has lost a substantial amount of weight and has this persistent behavior that they can't regain the weight.
0: And maybe I can stop you right there because I think that's a really important point to Mm -hmm. highlight that in the past, uh, as I recall, i have a BMI less than 18 or 18 and a half maybe mm-hmm. before you would suspect this. But now what you're saying is, well, yeah, if there's a very low BMI, we need to know about that. But yep. people with a BMI above 18 or even 20 or higher could still have an eating disorder because they meet all these other criteria, right?
1: Correct. Even the mortality and morbidity is pretty similar, independent of the BMI currently. So based on recent papers. This is anorexia nervosa, and it's usually about not eating, but there are subtypes that people have the purging or the restrictive behaviors, but I won't go too much into that. Then we have binge eating disorder, which is the recurrent episodes of binge eating that are marked by a lack of control. The patients don't feel that they have control of how much they are eating. And they may eat too quickly, or even when they're not hungry, they eat a large amount of food in a short period of time. And then that binge eating episode is accompanied by shame and guilt and feeling of lack of control. But in binge eating disorder, this is not associated with compensatory behavior, like excessive exercise or purging or restricting their food intake in the following days. That would be a characteristic of bulimia nervosa, which has the binge eating Uh, behaviors, uh, and also the compensatory behaviors. All these three eating disorders can occur at any weight, any BMI, really.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned uh, ARFID, right? So Mm -hmm. this is something that I don't remember learning about in medical school. I didn't learn medical school
1: either. This is, I'm going to say this with some caution, but someone to be characterized uh, or diagnosed with ARFID, they have to have extreme picky eating behaviors, whether that is by a texture or by a color, which is common in kids with this condition, or based on a previous experience, someone who got sick with, I don't know, with tacos, and now they restrict all Mexican foods. That's just a a funny example, but I actually had a patient with that. For example, someone who got sick with um, garbanzo beans, and now they restrict all types of legumes with the fear that they will have the symptom again. But it's not for, oh, I have an extreme picky eater in my family. I'm sure they have ARPHIC that's not enough. People have to have nutritional impacts from that and also social psychological impacts from that. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, good. So we now have an overview of some of the most common eating disorders. And, um, you know, I think our audience is probably generally familiar that these exist, may not be kind of routinely looking for them or thinking about them and maybe think, oh, well, you know, this is something that Psychologists manage or psychiatrists or behavioral scientists, why would this be relevant to a practicing gastroenterologist? And I think you answer that question very well in the paper. And I recommend those who are interested to go read this article. It's a very informative, short overview for the gastroenterologist. And in the article, you have a figure, it happens to be figure one. You talk about this bi-directional relationship between gastrointestinal symptoms and eating disorders. Maybe you can talk to us, although our listeners can't see the figure, but maybe talk to us about sort of the, the context of this figure and why it's important for our audience to know about.
1: Perfect. So the figure describes what you said, that we assume that there is a bi-directional relationship between GI symptoms and eating disorders. And the reason why we think of that is because the malnutrition or what we call the starvation brain is something that can come from eating disorders and people become malnourished. And then they have all sorts of feelings and behaviors around food are very different. And they can also develop central nervous system an autonomic nervous system and also enteric nervous system can be impacted by is malnutrition. We see that in different studies, for example, gastroparesis, patients who are malnourished and they have gastroparesis, once the weight is restored, the gastric emptying test goes back to normal. So that is something that we try to explain with this figure. The other thing that we try to explain is that someone with GI symptoms, they can also develop malnutrition because they are afraid of eating or because they had someone thought, well-intentioned to approach this with a dietary intervention. For example, someone with irritable bowel syndrome that has been recommended to follow a low FODMAP diet. And then the patient been lost to follow-up or doesn't feel so great with when they are in the restrictive phase of the diet that they are afraid of reintroducing foods back on their menu. And then they can become malnourished, lose weight, or have specific nutrient deficiencies. I'll call that behavior, whether that occurred for lack of follow-up or because patients decided to have extreme restrictions or prolonged restrictions over the time that we initially intended, then they can develop and eating disorder behavior through this maladaptive response. And that in itself can cause malnutrition and all these nervous system dysfunctions leading to more and more GI symptoms.
0: So you're kind of suggesting that, I think you're saying we have to be very careful about how we recommend dietary interventions because it could in a way backfire if people take those dietary interventions and have maladaptive responses to them and actually generate a new eating disorder as a consequence of our dietary interventions for common GI conditions like IBS? Is that is that what you're suggesting could happen?
1: Yeah, specifically for irritable bowel syndrome is a theoretical fear. Mm-hmm. However, for other diseases that are managed with diets, uh, chronic conditions, for example, celiac disease, there is some evidence in the literature that for patients who have celiac disease and an eating disorder that the celiac disease diagnosis preceded the eating disorder and that people with chronic conditions will have a higher chance of having an eating disorder compared with someone who is a healthy individual. Mm -hmm. So what we are suggesting is that, yes, there is this risk with dietary managed conditions and whether we are helping patients with dietary interventions or not, we probably are helping a good chunk of patients But there are some people who can develop these maladaptive disorders, or they can go uninformed or get lost to follow up and then be on a restrictive diet for longer than they should.
0: So this kind of speaks to the importance of multidisciplinary care for these patients. Absolutely. You touch on in the article. And many of us are not really trained in eating disorders, and we're not very well trained in dietary interventions. Yeah, certainly we know about gluten-free diet and low FODMAP diet, and there's a number of diets that we probably use pretty commonly in our practices, but we may not recognize some of these unintended consequences if we don't work closely with behavioral psychologists or dietitians who really know a lot more about this. Maybe you can speak to us about who should GI doctors be working with if they do recognize an eating disorder in a patient what should they do next who should they work with Uh, what is our responsibility in all this as gi doctors
1: so I think, of course, a dietitian. If you're planning on doing any dietary intervention in your patients, if you suspect they have an eating disorder, maybe that's not the best way to go and plan a dietary intervention right away as far as treating the GI symptoms. But having a dietitian to work with for either the, a dietary interventions or referring patients who you suspect have an eating disorder is a good way to start. And then, obviously, psychiatry and psychology would be a great help if you could partner with them, if you have a patient that you suspect has an eating disorder, to have appropriate interviews and, and screening. Majority of the screeners, or I should say all of the, the screening tools we have for eating disorders are not validated for the GI clinic. We have to be careful about having positive answers from the screening test. If you were to apply screening tools in your clinic, you have to be be aware that some of those answers may be positive because of the, their GI symptoms and not because they have an eating disorder per se. So we have to be careful about not generalizing that every patient who's restrict their diet has an eating disorder as well, because then you're overdiagnosing people and potentially even damaging or delaying diagnosis of some other organic disease.
0: Mm-hmm. So then, you know, so it's, it can be difficult. There's some challenges to making these diagnoses. The, it's rare that we're going to use a checklist. And even if we do, they're not necessarily validated for GI patients, as you're pointing out. So that kind of brings up like, what are the questions that we should have in our back pocket? So somebody listening to this podcast hasn't given a lot of thought maybe to eating disorders, maybe they have, I don't know, but they're thinking, all right, what's what's sort of a take-home for me? One thing that caught my eye is this idea that, so for many of these patients with eating disorders, their symptoms are egocentric, which is a a term you used in the paper, uh, which I take to mean they almost feel as if these symptoms are an acceptable part of who they are. I mean, as their sense of self, so deeply associated with the way they eat and the symptoms that they feel that it can be hard to shake people from those beliefs. So with that in mind, you pointed out that it could be helpful to examine how patients respond to recommendations to yeah. change diet for high calorie diet for, for weight restoration. And just to find out like, are people even open to these, and that alone may give you a sense of whether there's an eating disorder. Maybe you could talk to us more about that idea and what a take-home is for our listeners.
1: Absolutely. So we developed with our clinical psychologists that work with eating disorders for several years, we developed with them a list of possible questions that you would ask in your office, depending, of course, on your scenario and and the symptoms and how comfortable you feel in asking these questions. So I think the one thing that you should always think about is being very open and asking patients, do you have, or have you ever been diagnosed with an eating disorder? Because I was surprised when I started asking that, that people are not afraid of telling yes, if you ask the question openly, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, but we did develop some other suggestions that people can incorporate according to their comfort status. So... We ask, for example, are your symptoms affected by food and how so? Or what feelings do you have at mealtime or when you look at food? Those are questions that would give you an idea about mealtime experience and feelings and sensations and whether they will restrict more or less uh, their diet. The other thing is asking about therapy, as you mentioned. What if we could restore the weight you had before you got sick? That's one question that Patients with anorexia will be like, well, no, I actually really feel much better with the weight that I have. And patients with ARFID would potentially answer, that would be great, but I don't want to eat to go back to that weight. You have to find another way to restore my weight. Mm -hmm. So those would be some clues that you could find in the the answers that patients provide to us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's very helpful. And I think we know with, with anorexia, and I'm no expert, but know a little bit about this because uh, I, I'm interested in virtual reality and a whole different life. And VR, it turns out, has some benefits for treating anorexia because one of the sort of a body dysmorphic syndrome where people with anorexia feel as if they truly believe that their body is normal habitus, that is, if anything, maybe too big. But objectively, it isn't. And and there's almost like this breakdown in the way the mind is perceiving the body. And it turns out that variety of behavioral interventions, including virtual reality, where you can inhabit a body that is normally proportioned and literally feel like you are now back in a normally sized body can change people's perception of their body and open the doors to um, therapy. And I'm not suggesting that GI doctors should be doing these sorts of things, but the point is when we find that somebody's rather recalcitrant to uh, recommendations, that's sort of the first sign that there is almost an interceptive blockade between the mind and the body and the perception of the body. And that means we need to kind of go to some experts who really know what they're doing. And that's certainly not me, for example, but there are people that use VR, that use CBT and other very involved multidisciplinary approaches. So we could talk about this topic for quite a while. I think we're going to end there. And again, I want to recommend um, our our listeners, if you want to learn more, uh, please check out this paper. Uh, Again, it's titled Assessing for Eating Disorders, a Primer for Gastroenterologists, Primer as opposed to Primer, which is paint. I want to thank you again for being with us today and for sharing your insights uh, from this paper. And on behalf of the editors and of American Journal of Gastroenterology and my co-editor Brian Lacey thanks again for being with us for this month's podcast.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.